Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Those who dare to fail miserably can achieve greatly is a quote from John F. Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States of America. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, like JFK, a politician and statesman, is progressing the necessary political debate to reconcile a vision of the country with the actions of today. Our guest today is the Honourable Joel Fitzgibbon, MP, Member for Hunter, New South Wales, a member of the Australian Labor Party, Joel was previously Minister for Defence and Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry. He also served as Chief Government Whip and chaired the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. First elected in 1996, Joel has been re-elected eight times to represent Hunter for the last 25 years. Prior to joining Parliament, he was a business owner and a councillor and Deputy Mayor for Cessnock City Council. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Italy, Indonesia and Argentina, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In an open discussion, Joel brings to the fore what the Australian Labor Party stands for, its critical role in progressing the country's political discourse and keeping alive one of the fundamental elements of democracy. And we ask him, where to now for the Labor Party? So sit back and enjoy Where To Now. Joel, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be back, Greg. Look, the last time we had a conversation, Joel, you warned us about a potential split in the Labor Party. Now, a year on, is it any more or less likely? And we caused a bit of controversy together, Greg, uh, on on that occasion. And I remind you that I didn't say I hoped the party would split or I wanted the party to split. I said, I think pretty clearly, I feared it it could split. Uh, Why? Because it now has these very defined support bases. One is the traditional base, typical, typically blue-collar workers, uh, high-vis workers, uh, low-paid workers, etc. Uh, and, of course, this more progressive, upwardly mobile base, uh, more typically if not in the regions but you know around our, our capital cities. And it is getting more difficult. Uh, am I less fearful about that than I was nearly 12 months ago? I think the answer to that is no. Is that right? 
I, I still I still fear for the party. I, I think it's it has a structural problem. So to take it further, maybe you could argue it's in structural decline. Yeah. Uh, why? Because the party is losing its traditional members, uh, typically again found not only in the regions but in the suburbs, uh, where they worked in factories, in in the like in Sydney's West, for example. Yeah. And it's being filled up. That vacuum is being filled by young progressives coming off the campuses of our sandstone universities in the capital cities. Yes. So you're seeing a, a balance uh, change in the party's yes. membership. And, of course, Kevin Rudd some time ago provided all those members, rank-and-file members as we call them, sort of Soviet term, yes, um, with a direct vote in the election of the parliamentary leaders. Now, that means that to become or to hope to become the parliamentary leader, either at state or federal level, you really have to appeal to those progressives, some which I have described as excessive progressives. You have to appeal to them because they all have a vote now uh, in the membership. So that's not a too subtle change, uh, not so subtle change in the way the, the party operates. And... Unfortunately, it's pushing the party further and further from the centre in the leftward uh, direction. Uh, and it's also having an impact on the makeup of the parliamentary parties. Um, you know, we've always had these factions known as the right and the left, pretty well defined, although there have often been sub factions of the left and sub factions of the right. I have this infamous Otis script, you've probably heard of that, uh, which is a, a pretty right wing outfit in, in Labour Party terms. But the right uh, is no longer the right in the Labor Party, particularly here in New South Wales, used to be the ballast of the party, particularly around the Hawke and Keating era. It was the sensible centre that kept the show together and kept us uh, electable. But the right is now awash because of changes in the branch structure uh, with pe with very progressive people, people who would ordinarily f expect to be found uh, in the left of the party. And that, again, is a, a change in what's happening in the membership, but also a reflection on what's happening in society. Society's changing. Yes. Uh, the community is becoming more progressive. But I think that the Labor Party is running ahead of the community and uh, that's making things difficult for us and is putting pressure on the, the party as we know it. So what can be done, Joel? Well, I think we've got to revoke Rudd's rule. I just don't think we can go on allowing the rank and file to have a vote. Look, it's easy to argue that you can never have too much democracy and that party, the party membership should be entitled for their money and their activism a, a, a vote in the leadership. But my view is that each of us uh, go to Canberra or to Sydney, for example, as, as representatives of our electorates, of our branch membership, and... We work alongside these people who aspire to be leader. We work alongside them uh, every day. And I think we are the best placed people to determine who would be the best person to lead uh, the party. And, you know, I'm confident that we all in doing that, uh, in part at least, reflect the views of our local branches. I mean, you're not a long-term member of parliament if you're not, you know, maintaining respect for your branches and, and following some guidance uh, f from them. So... I think we've got to get rid of that. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have leadership aspirants pitching to the hard left, and I fear that will continue to render us unelectable uh, and, of course, further put pressure on people to leave the party or spit away from the party looking for something which is more, more, more suitable to their ideology. So for those who care about the party, can I ask, 
after the recent, I guess, loss and the New South Wales by-election for the Upper Hunter, what is the type of review undertaken by the Labor Party? How serious and how penetrating is it? Well, the Labor Party had a very substantial review after the last federal election, and it made some pretty significant recommendations, and they were good recommendations. The question becomes, have we followed any of them? And I'll put it to you, we have not, not much has changed. I think Anthony Albanese understands that we, we have to get the party back further to the centre, and he's moderated some of the language and he's got some a bit of some of the class warfare that uh, we encountered or were, I suppose, responsible for at the last election. So he's done some things. But, you know, Albo, uh, like all of us, is a creature of where he comes from. Yeah. Uh, he represents Marrickville and the like. Uh, I represent Singleton and Musselbrook and Cessnock, and they are two very different electorates. Uh, and so Albo, as much as he tries to pull the party back to the centre, uh, will always be in part guided by the nature of his electorate. And uh, I, th- I think that makes it a difficult task for him. So what message do you want to see from the leadership? Well, I want the Labor Party to be, uh, to be more embracing of all of its membership. I want it to be uh, louder in its respect for and pride for our, our traditional base. I want it to clearly say that it supports the mining industry and those who work in it, that it supports the gas industry and those who work in it, the oil industry and those who work in it, those who get their hands dirty in abattoirs and the like. I don't like this, well, we're not opposed to it, or we won't stand in the way, or we'll leave it to the market. We need to be very clear and concise in our pronunciation of that, and that is that we support those industries. But look, I don't really want to be talking about those things. I think the only thing that they are distractions. We shouldn't need to be having a conversation about the mining industry because it should be without question that we support it. Yeah, right. uh, the next election will be about two things. The personal health and safety of me and my family, that is, other people and their families, and, of course, their financial security. And we need to focus on those two things and not spend too much time talking about the things that do divide the two bases that we now encounter uh, in our party. We should be talking about the things we agree more on and be clear and concise about our plans to deliver that personal security and that financial security. But the coalition's not shooting it out of the park area, are they? Surely there's an opportunity to gain. Yeah, well, this is the frustration. It's not as if we're up against a good government. Uh, Scott Morrison promised at the last election to do nothing, and that's pretty much what he's done, other outside his COVID responses. But there's a point there. Uh, and Tony Blair, as you know, wrote a very good uh, essay yep. for the New Statesman a couple of weeks ago now, uh, I suppose, and... I think at the risk of misrepresenting him, his general point there is that left of centre parties right around the world are in trouble, and he he quoted plenty of examples. I don't think he quoted Australia, but we're certainly a good example. And he talked mainly about taming what I call the excessive progressives. He called them the radical progressives, I think, uh, and leaving them too much space to become the you know, the main message of the party, uh, yep. the, the dominant voice within the party. And, you know, we have to tame the excessive progressives here in Australia as well. But the other point uh, I think he was making, and it's certainly something I drew from it, is that, you know, progressive parties are by definition about change, change for the better, lifting people up, getting rid of discrimination and, and making workplace practices better and, and lifting wages and, and the like. Yep. 
Um, but all sorts of change. Conservatives, by definition, you know, like the status quo. They, they like things to remain the same. Mm. Now, being a progressive in a period of glacial change almost was one thing. But progressive parties now are arguing for change at a time when we've never had so much change. We, we, we are experiencing so much change driven by technology that people are becoming fearful of it. Yeah. So what they're looking for is some reassurance that they're not going to be adversely affected by change, that there's someone there with their hand on the tiller making sure they will be okay. So Morrison's message works pretty well in this environment. He's basically saying, well, your beer might not be as cold as you'd like it to be, but don't risk a warmer one by going to the other mob. I, I can't promise you a colder beer, but the one you've got's not too bad, is it? So just stick with that. Don't take the risk. So the devil you know. Hmm. So, and the Labor Party, again, is still banging on about change. But, you know, we don't always clearly define what change we're, we're looking for. And then, of course, given we are such a, a more wealthy society than we were 40 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, driven, of course, by the Hawke-Keating reforms, people are pretty comfortable not everyone, of course. There are still people out there that need a hand up, and the Labor Party must always focus on those too. But yes. they're just looking for reassurance that that will remain be, remain the case that they 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 will still continue to live a, a relatively prosperous life, and they feel threatened by things like climate change, for example, which for many people is code for, uh, you know, that might have to change for you in the interest of the planet. People are understandably concerned when they hear the Labor Party still having a debate about whether we might repeal stage three of the already legislated tax cuts, for example. I mean, it's a, a bizarre idea that you might go to an election promising to take money off people through the tax system. So we, we need to have a vision, but we all, also need to be able to reassure people that they can come to the Labor Party without putting at risk at all their economic prosperity. And the paper that Tony Blair um, drafted on the essay was called Without Total Change, Labor will die. That's a big, big title. And, yeah. and you think that is the case well, it in, was in a, traditional terminology? It was a serious piece and I think he very deliberately used pretty big words. I think he used the words, uh, you're going to repel Labor voters. Well, we are repelling Labor voters. And, you know, I became vocal again recently after the state by-election in, in the Hunter. Now, the numbers there for the Labor Party were pretty bad. But like in any election, you can cut them any way you like and deliver evidence that it wasn't as bad as it might have been or should have been or could have been. But you have to have been standing on the polling booths on the day to appreciate that the people who walked away from us in 2019 at the federal election and had walked away from us from time to time in previous elections, uh, and I go right back to 98 on that question where One Nation received 11% of the primary vote in the Hunter electorate yeah, exactly. a long time ago, so you had to stand there to understand and appreciate that they haven't changed their minds. You know, they were coming past me and saying, G'day, Fitzy, how are you going? You're doing a good job, but what's going on with your party? Um, now, I see you're against gas now, you know, because only days ago, in a moment of madness, political madness, the Labor Party decided it was going to oppose a $600 million investment in one of, in, in one of its marginal seats. And logic being what, Joel? What's the logic behind that argument? Purely ideologically driven madness over climate change. This is what this is all about. And when those coal miners in the Hunter region hear that, they hear a subliminal message about their own jobs. The Labor Party doesn't support people who work in fossil fuel industries. So what does the Labor Party stand for? 
Well, I like to think the Labor Party still stands for working people. And, you know, what are working people? The, is that the we're, message? We're, we're working people, everyone from, you know, the low-paid people we're, we're working in aged care homes or, you know, nurses in our hospitals, uh, those who still work, you know, some some more modern manufacturing plants, etc. And, of course, it extends to the oil and gas workers and the coal workers, the power station generator workers, etc. So it's a pretty broad church. You know, I think you've just got to stand... You've got to have a template, you know. Um, like I, I like to talk about SAFE like as an acronym. S is for security, you know, their, their health and their, their, their personal uh, safety. A is for uh, aspiration. Um, obviously, backing those people who have done okay and looking for that reassurance that, um, that they'll continue to be supported by the government for the tax system or won't be penalised for the tax system, etc. F is for fairness. You know, everything we look at, we should test against fairness. Now, the Labor Party, if nothing else, should be about fairness. And E is for the environment, not not just the natural environment, but the question becomes, is the proposal we're all considering sustainable? Yeah, exactly. You know? um, so, if, you know, if you apply that template to every bill that comes before you or any policy p- proposal that comes before you and you stick to that, then then you, you can't go wrong and you're consistent. So we keep hearing net zero, net zero, net zero. What does it actually really mean, Joe? Well, the operative word there, of course, is net, meaning that you, you, your output of greenhouse gases is no greater than that which you are absorbing. So it doesn't mean you have to get emissions down to zero. It just means that you have to abate more. You have to you know, absorb more you know, plant life, soil life, or capture it and bury it, as we do in carbon capture and storage in, in the fossil fuel industry. Now, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with net zero emissions uh, for two reasons. Uh, there are so many governments and you know companies supporting it now. People, people will come to see it as a fairly normal thing and achie- an achievable thing to do. Um, so it should not scare the horses. I mean, you get the right-wing nut jobs who are going to continue to say you can't do that without killing the economy. That's just not true. And Australia is a better place than most countries to do it because we've got advanced technologies now or nearing nearing commercial technologies in carbon capture and storage, which would be enormous. Imagine if you could capture the carbon out of all your coal-fired generators and gas projects. So, yeah. so that's a big game changer. And I think between now and 2050, we'll have that down pat so we can get there, I think, uh, pretty easily. But I don't think we... Do, we spend enough time explaining what we uh, mean by net zero emissions. And something else happened very recently. The International Energy Agency put out a report, yeah. uh, which was misreported and misrepresented in my view. You know, saying, "Oh, well, the, the, no less than the International Energy Agency has said that if you if you're going to get the net zero, um, you're going to have to have no more unabated you know, power stations and no more gas projects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." And in my view, the, the IEA was doing something quite different than warning that, if you like, we, this is what we need to do. What they were saying is, hey, all you countries making these net zero emissions commitments, you haven't really got a plan to get there. And let us tell us what you would need to get there because you might want to have a rethink. Yep. And there was, even, there was even some tongue-in-cheek remarks in there like um, it will mean you know walking one day rather than driving or foregoing one overseas holiday. Now, that if that wasn't tongue-in-cheek, I don't know what is. I, I think they were basically saying, don't make this commitment if you haven't re- worked out what this really means to get there because this is pretty serious stuff. What should we be committing to then, Joel, in regards to discussions over at the G7? 
Oh, well, I think we should be committing to net zero emissions, uh, playing our part. But we're one point three percent of uh, global emissions. I mean, yeah, really. I mean, nothing. We could shut down our economy tomorrow it would make a jot of difference to the, the planet. But at the same, having said that, you can't go. You can't expect to go to these forums internationally and be treated with respect if you're telling them what to do, but you're not doing it yourself. So we have to do our bit, and we we can do it without harming our economy if we're and, and if we're sensible about it. And we don't need. You know, the carbon tax or any sort of constraint on carbon, whatever you want to call it, I think is a 20th century solution to our now 21st century challenge. I think we're past that. We're, we're well and truly down the, the technological path, which Morrison calls it. Um, and, you know, to even those who don't like that pathway, I say it's too late. We, we've yeah. already embarked on that pathway. Like in the Hunter Valley, we are leading the country in renewable energies. We... In addition to our retaining our coal-fired generators other than Liddell, we are building a gas-fired power station, hopefully a, a pumped hydro power station. Uh, we have huge solar projects happening on the Liddell site and down on the old curry curry hydro aluminium site. Yep. Uh, we have a huge battery storage investment in, in the pipeline on what a place they call the Hunter Economic Zone. We are now a hydrogen hub. So, you know, we are leading the country, but we can do all these things without forsaking the life of those existing coal-fired generators that remain in, in, in the mix. Yep. Um, but but if to, to get more renewables in, into the market, we'll need yep. to keep those coal-fired generators there. Yep. And as they come out of service, as they all age, we need gas-fired generators to put the firming power we need into the grid to keep it stable, to keep the lights on, to keep the wheels of industry turning, and, of course, uh, to keep the, the grid stable. And where does business really stand about the whole gas play? It's been pretty quiet out there. Well, first of all, I think business is all the businesses everywhere, including resource companies, are signing up to net zero emissions because that's what they have to do. You know, the shareholder activism and the gen, you know, the community view more generally you know, insist that they say, "Yeah, we're for zero net emissions." Yep. Too. The question becomes what they're doing about getting there. And some of think? them, some of them are doing not much. So you reckon? All of yeah, and, and, and countries like Japan, are, Japan's de declared it, it's on track to zero net emissions or it's, it's aiming for net zero emissions, but they're building coal-fired power plants, Greg, as we speak. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. Closer to home, what's happening in New South Wales? A few changes now in leadership here? Yeah, um, tough time, times for Labor in New South Wales too and another bad election loss. Um, you know, Gladys Berejiklian, like all premiers, uh, is enjoying the advantages of incumbency during COVID, and she's done a you know, pretty good job by any measure. So she's going to be very, very hard to beat. Uh, I feel for Jodie McKay. I thought Jodie McKay had a good narrative, looked good, sounded good, and uh, it, it's a real shame that she's had to fall on her sword. Chris Minns, I don't know well, um, but you know he's from the right of the party, which pleases me, and I hope he's someone that can take us back to the centre and away from this obsession with uh, all things environment and the like. And the environment's important, but we have to have the balance right. So I'm confident he can take us there, but we'll see how he goes over the coming months. And, Joel, over the last 12 months, you know, you had a chance to stand back and look at how the states have been responding to the challenge of COVID. As a nation, have we been smart? Have we really played it really well, or have we been a little bit behind the eight ball in the sense of really connectivity? And there seems to be fiefdoms up and down the country. Well, we're an island. That's that's been our biggest advantage, and we shut our borders, and we kept everyone else out, and the the virus with them in the main. Yeah, 
the federal government stuffed up the quarantining a fair bit and we had some breakouts that caused more lockdowns. The big debate has been, of course, about whether lockdowns were too harsh and at times necessary. But I think the the result is evidence that it was the right thing to do. But we can't keep locking down people. We have to we have to achieve broad scale vaccination, and the government has hasn't been doing much of a job of that. I think most people would agree, and the polls say that too. We need to tidy that up, and if we can tidy both quarantine and vaccination up, then hopefully in the not too distant future uh, we can get on with some form of normality and. To answer your question, there's no doubt that Australia is the best place in the world to be, if not always, certainly now. And Joel, if the ALP is moving more and more to the left, according to Tony Blair, and we're seeing it here in this this country, in all honesty, what chance do you have, or does the ALP have, of securing victory in the next election? Well, in the Westminster system, which is a two-horse race, each of the jockeys always has a chance. There is no doubt about that. Uh, But you'd have to say that... um, Labor continues to struggle uh, at a national level uh, here. People say, well, Labor Party must be going all right. Look at Mark McGowan and Anastasia Palaszczuk. Yeah. Two points about that. State elections are different matters based on different issues. Uh, also, some states are naturally Labor states and always have been. Some are not. Nationally, we, we've never been the natural party of government. Um, we haven't been in government much in our history. Uh, the hawk... Keating years, of course, were the exception to the rule, but they they stuck very, very much to the centre, if not centre-right. Yep. They, they, they gave Pip that reassurance they were looking for, that you can vote for the Labor Party and it will be okay. It's not going to change your life. In fact, it might be even better. Uh, we've only won government from opposition three times since the Second World War. Yeah, it's tragic, isn't it? And on each occasion that happened, uh, we had Messiahs leading us, Whitlam, Hawke, and Rudd. Rudd was a very, very popular character uh, in the lead-up to that 2000 election campaign and very well known. Um, we don't have a messiah at the moment. Uh, Albo is a mate of mine. He's a great guy, very solid and all of that. But like me, he's not a messiah. He's, he's, not, he's not a Gough Whitlam or a Bob Hawke. Having said that, I, don't, I think Bob Hawke would be struggling in this COVID environment where incumbency is so powerful. But the fact is that we're, we are not the natural party of government. Uh, They only come to us when they're tired of or angry with the other mob and we don't look too scary. And our first quest really is to not look scary. And, you know, promising not to repeal tax cuts is a pretty good start on your quest not to look scary. But so too is assuring people in industries that the environmental movement spends so much time attacking that under a Labor government, they'll still have a job. They'll have job security. That would be another good start. Yeah, but we just saw a, a huge opportunity for the Labor Party, i.e. Uh, they come back on the budget. Now, there wasn't a lot of reform done by this government. Most people would argue the coalition has enormous opportunity to, to bring through for reform. Yeah, but, but where, 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 was the, where was the argument back or the ideas or the vision yeah, you just well, talked but, about? But I can't have it both ways. I, I, can't, I can't say that we've got to be careful not to look scary and then then suggest that we should have big ideas out there going to change things too much in a time, at a time, when change is all around us. Uh, now, Stephen Lusley, in a recent piece in the Australian newspaper, made a good point. He said maybe Labor could have outflanked Scott Morrison on the right by promising to do something about this enormous budget deficit Correct. that Scott Morrison has produced uh, on uh, his watch, which will be paid for by future generations, my kids, your kids, our grandchildren. 
Uh, now, that was a big idea, which would be not just centre, but to the right of centre, arguably. Uh, the, you know, that would be pretty safe and solid ground for us. But, of course, you know, we'd have to work out over time uh, where we're going to make those savings. But that could that's something that could be done after the election, not necessarily need to be done before an election. And, Joel, if the party was to look at the election structure, i.e. through the rank and file, and if Mr Albanese may not be the person who's going to take you to the promised land, Who's coming out of the rock that we should be looking at without necessarily giving names, but are you comfortable what you're seeing in, in the form of the party? Look, we, I said we don't have a messiah in our ranks, um, and I support Anthony Albanese. I know I, you support I, him, I, but I, there's I, no I point you're going to keep losing. No, no, I don't, I don't believe there is anyone in our ranks that could do necessarily better than, than Anthony Albanese. I think he's worked hard. He's well known now. We've invested a lot of money in him. Uh, my uh, my various uh, public contributions are only about uh, shaping Anthony Albanese's message. Uh, I want him to be the prime minister. I think he can be the prime minister. I think he's still a chance, but I think he needs to be clearer about his support for people who work in industries that, as I said, so often come under attack from environmental activists. I just make a point. The easy thing in a broken relationship is to walk away, you know, and, and give up. Sure. The harder thing is to work on the relationship. Now, there are two marriages happening here. There's there's one between the traditional right of the party and the left of the party. Yes. Uh, it's fractured. We need to mend it. And the second marriage, of course, is between the Labor Party and its traditional base. Uh, in the electorate, uh, they've walked away. They've taken the easy option, yep. which means we need to work, work even harder about bringing them back and, and making that relationship work. And it, it won't happen by nuance. You know, we're not against something. We're not opposed to something, and it's a matter for the market. We need to make commitment. They've lost trust in us. You don't bring them back with weasel words. Yeah, they pick those up pretty easily and quickly. You need to be clear, crystal clear about your intentions. You need to be reassuring them unequivocally they have your support. So if you're going to give us all one bit of a bit of advice to think about in between here and when the next election will be, what should we be thinking about, Joel? Well, well, well Australians, like human beings right around the world, will think first and foremost about themselves and their family and their happiness, their health and their financial security. And if that's what they're thinking about, then that's what the Labor Party needs to be talking about. Joel, thank you very much for joining us again today. A great pleasure, Greg. On that, you've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.